Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Uh, and before uh, the sermon, I just want to remind you uh, this is the first uh, Sunday of Lent, and um, we are asking all of you to stay a little longer for the next uh, six Sundays to be a part of our after-service Lenten small group. So uh, following the service, we'll have lunch together, and then you've all been broken up into six uh, randomly assigned groups, relatively randomly assigned groups, and uh, the um, the welcoming table will tell you which group you're in, or they'll be posted on the walls uh, in the building, so please find out which group you're in, and please stick around, uh, just for this season. Uh, Lenten is a time where we can really kind of uh, take a little more seriously our discipleship, uh, to dig a little 
deeper into our lives to self-reflect. And so I invite all of you to please stay uh, during the season for the extra hour or so and participate. Having said that, I also want to remind you uh, that if you are not feeling well, uh, even if it's not COVID, but you have a fever or a cold, um, something like that, uh, please stay home and um, let's uh, care for one another in that way as well. All right, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day and the season into which we have now begun. Um, be with us, walk with us, and guide us through this wilderness. We ask in your name. Amen. So our reading today is usually referred to as a story of the rich young ruler. Even though Mark only tells us that the man has a lot of possessions. The Gospel of Matthew, however, has the additional detail that this man is young, and the Gospel of Luke adds that he was a ruler. And so these three tellings in the Gospels get conflated, and he is known as the rich young ruler. According to Mark, this is a man who is very serious, perhaps even desperate, about his faith. He so urgently wants an answer to his religious question that he has come running to Jesus. Adults are not supposed to run. It's undignified. But then he further humbles himself by kneeling before Jesus in front of the crowds and disciples. And he says, Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response, Jesus lists a series of commandments that should be familiar to you. It's the second half of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He lists commandments number six, seven, eight, nine in order. And then he switches out the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, by interpreting that to mean do not defraud. And then finishes the list by going back to commandment number five, to honor your father and mother. I think he's doing it this way because in the letter to the uh, Ephesians, we are reminded that this commandment to honor your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So since the man is asking about eternal life, Jesus seems uh, appropriate enough to highlight this last fifth commandment about a long life. And so Jesus has listed commandments 5 through 10, the entire second half of the Decalogue highlighting our relationship with others. It's all about how we are supposed to relate to one another. And the man is able to respond that he has faithfully kept all of these commandments his entire life. It may sound like an idle boast, but Jesus does not dispute his claims. In fact, hearing the man's response, we are told that Jesus loved him. Jesus recognized and affirms this man's sincerity and earnestness. By any reasonable measure, this man would be described as a good man. He's serious about his faith. He's humble. He's moral. He's rich. And if we add Matthew and Luke's descriptions, he's also young. He's a ruler, maybe a mayor of a town, or a CEO of a company. And as if all of that were not enough, we are told that he is loved by Jesus. Isn't this the kind of person you want to have as your neighbor? Isn't this the kind of people we want to join our church? Isn't this the 
kind of person that you want your kids to grow up to be, or at least to marry. Yet what we are reminded today is that earnest piety, unquestioned ethical character, material blessings as a potential sign of God's favor, and even being loved by Jesus is not enough to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough. And here's the sad part of the story. Rabbi Herod Krishna writes in his book, When All You've Ever Wanted Is Not Enough. He writes, Our souls are not hungry for fame, comfort, wealth, or power. These rewards create almost as many problems as they solve. Our souls are hungry for meaning. The man understood that his possessions and obedience to the law would not give him the kind of comfort and meaning and assurance that he is looking for. He understood that Jesus spoke the truth, and yet he walked away sorrowful and disheartened, for he had great possessions. This is a man who is possessed by his possessions. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus is not here giving us a universal command of absolute poverty for everyone. If that were the case, we should then never help out the poor because then we would be disrupting their already perfect state of discipleship. We should also remember that Jesus had wealthy friends like Martha and Mary and Lazarus, that rich people, particularly women, supported his ministry. And there were others like Zacchaeus who were wealthy who were not asked to sell all their possessions and to give to the poor. However, at the same time, it should also be clear that Jesus is pointing out the real dangers of possession and wealth in our discipleship. It's a warning to us, especially those of us, because we live in the wealthiest of nations and the wealthiest of churches. It's a warning that we must heed. As Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6 also reminds us, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Or as Jesus will put it more succinctly, you cannot serve both God and money. So when the man walks away, Jesus uses this encounter to teach his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Difficult is actually a gross understatement. Because Jesus follows that up with, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you may have been taught when you were younger, or maybe you have heard, that the eye of a needle was a small gate around the walls of Jerusalem, and that a camel could go through this eye if you know, it shed its burdens you know, and got squatted, and it could kind of, kind of squeeze through this tiny little gate uh, in the wall of Jerusalem. This was a popular interpretation suggesting that while it is difficult, a camel, in theory, could squeeze through the eye of the needle as long as it, you know, dropped its burdens and load. And so it was then interpreted, and likewise, a rich person could also enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard, but as long as the rich person, you know, sheds 
some or all of his wealth, he too could then squeeze into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a very uh, humanly appealing interpretation, right? Because, yeah, as long as you are able to do some of these things, then you can kind of work your way into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the problem is that there was no such gate. It's completely a medieval invention. There is no way into the kingdom of God by our efforts, even our efforts of shedding those things that hinder us. Jesus is just simply picking out the largest land animal that people knew about and maybe the smallest hole that he could think of. It's easier for an elephant to go through the, you know, buttonhole here, you know? Easier for an elephant to go through the buttonhole of this jacket than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And notice, it's not just impossible for the wealthy. When his disciples are amazed that those people that they think are favored by God, those who are wealthy, if they can't enter into the kingdom of God, then what chance do the rest of us have? And Jesus says, no, no. He takes out the wealth qualifier and he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This is the blanket statement for everyone. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it is not difficult just for the rich. It is not even extremely or supremely difficult for others. It is impossible. It is absurdly impossible. That's the point. Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. It can't be done. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus had said a little earlier in chapter 9, all things are possible to the one who believes. All things, even impossible things to the one who believes, because all things are possible with God. This is the crux of the gospel. This is the crux of the gospel. And I think it's good for us to hear this word as we enter into the season of Lent. With us, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, it's possible. We all lack one thing. We are all camels. We all have no way of passing through the eye of a needle or entering into the kingdom of God. We have no way. But God has made a way. This is why Jesus answered the man the way he did. When he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Instead of answering that question directly, Jesus first challenges him by asking, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Why do you call me good? Now, Jesus is here not denying his own goodness, nor his divinity, but he's asking the man, do you understand what you're asking? If you're trying to flatter me by calling me good, it's not going to work. If you understand that God is good, do you understand the implication of calling me good? Jesus wants the man to understand that this is not a conversation between one good man and another good man. Jesus is challenging him to reevaluate his understanding of goodness 
and of God and of Jesus himself. Because whatever goodness that we have, as James just reminded us, it comes through God's creative goodness. God declared his creation good and very good. That is the only goodness we have. It's given to us by God. And the man mistakenly thinks that he can do something good or good enough to merit rather than inherit eternal life. He has lived his entire life by doing, by earning, by acquiring. He has the resources and the confidence to do whatever might be required to obtain eternal life. He probably hoped that Jesus would say something along the lines of, give a tithe to your synagogue. Make a large donation to the food bank. Fast a few days. Go to prayer meeting on Saturday mornings at 6 in the morning. Stick around after church and go to small group. Get baptized and confirmed. And then you will inherit eternal life. He does not see the tragic flaw in the very question. His question itself is misguided. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do you get or how do you earn an inheritance? You can't. The simple answer is that the way you receive an inheritance is when the person who wants to give it to you dies. It's a gift. You don't do anything. And that's how one inherits the kingdom of God, through the death of Jesus Christ, which Jesus will reiterate to his uncomprehending disciples for a third time in the very next passage. Eternal life is an inheritance. It is not a reward. In his questioning, Jesus is getting at the man's core. He's asking, can you divest yourself of the idolatry of materialism? Can you walk away from the goods, all these goods that you have, that keep you from the goodness of God? The man has many, many goods in his possessions. And so he cannot grasp the one true good. The love of stuff is preventing him from the love of God. Jesus sees sees that though the man may have thought that he was keeping faith, he has fundamentally failed to keep the law. It isn't that he hasn't done enough to help the poor. It isn't that he hasn't tried to be good. It isn't that he's insincere. And it's certainly not because he's rich. It's that simply he does not trust God for his life and eternal life. He trusts himself to acquire them, to do something, to get it. And in this, he has missed the most basic question, the most fundamental law, commandment of all. When Jesus says, you lack one thing, it's not something trivial. He lacks the foundation, the love of God. The first commandment that is given to us is to love the Lord our God. There is no higher command than this. The Shema, the foundational teaching of the Torah is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And by the way, that word might should be translated probably as possessions. We are to love God supremely with all our being, with all that we are, with all that we have. 
That's what the man is lacking. Jesus didn't tell him, but the first half of the Ten Commandments begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods other than me. You shall not make for yourself any idols like your possessions. Jesus is not telling the man to sell everything to give to the poor and then he will inherit eternal life. If that were true, it would be even worse than being possessed by possessions. It would mean that eternal life becomes just another economic transaction for us. And it would exclude those who have nothing to give away or not enough to give away. And notice here that Jesus is not offering this man this exchange of the eternal life in exchange for all his possessions. Jesus does not say, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then you will inherit eternal life. He says, sell that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. The exchange is for his wealth, for treasure in heaven. And do you see? It's, Jesus is telling him there's nothing you can do to acquire eternal life, but you can use your wealth to lay aside treasure in heaven. Your possessions can lead to treasures in heaven, not eternal life. And so that's the question Jesus wants, I think, him to think about, and for us as well. Instead of asking the question, how can I go to heaven? How can I have eternal life? Rather than that being our preoccupation, I think Jesus is telling us to ask instead, how can I store up treasure in heaven? How can I become rich in the things that really matter eternally. Jesus is asking the man and us to shift our focus away from how can I ensure my well-being, my eternal life, and to think toward how can I help others to improve their lives and for others to find salvation. You know, this was a great shift in the Protestant Reformation, of which we are all heirs. The great evangelical rediscovery of Martin Luther and others was the realization that there is nothing, there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Luther himself realized that there was nothing that he could do to make himself righteous before a holy God. He tried so hard, harder than any of us are likely ever to try to be right before God. But he knew that there was always something missing. No matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he fasted, no matter how much he confessed his sins, there was always one little sliver of pride left unconfessed. There was always one little bit of sin that remained. There was always one little piece of something that wasn't quite holy enough. And he knew that before, in the presence of a holy and absolutely perfect God, that that little sliver would disqualify him from the kingdom of God. And when he realized that, he began to hate God for demanding a righteousness that he could not achieve no matter how hard he worked at it. And then he had the breakthrough. He realized that what he could never accomplish for himself, Christ did for him. That was the great freedom. 
Jesus took care of his salvation. Jesus paid the penalty for his sins. And so now, he doesn't have to worry about his salvation. It's been taken care of. He can completely ignore his own salvation because Christ has taken care of it for him. And so now he's free, absolutely free. And in the joy of that knowledge, he can now live his life doing good, doing good works for others, to lead others to Christ so that they too can enjoy and realize the truth that he himself has come to know. Luther realized he was a camel. And he knew that there was no way that he was going to get through a needle. But he discovered that God is able. That's the good news. Now, you might have wondered, some of you, why the reading this morning began with Jesus taking the children into his arms and blessing them. That story is usually read separately or is read with the passage preceding it because the previous passage where Jesus teaches about divorce and so the passage regarding the children and the blessing of children is usually connected with that because of the impact of divorce on children. But it seems to me that this is also connected to our reading because Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, it's, it's the same point. You can only enter the kingdom of God if you receive it like a child. It is to be received, not achieved. And that's why Jesus uses the illustration of a child. Unlike today where we tend to think of children as, you know, cute and sweet and, and innocent, things like that. In Jesus' day, children were symbols of weakness, of powerlessness. When you looked at a child, you thought, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible to be a child. Children had absolutely no means, no resources, no abilities, no status. They possessed nothing. And Jesus says, they can enter the kingdom of heaven precisely because they have nothing. Right? That's the same thing that Jesus is trying to teach here. The man had replied, look what he says, I've kept all the law since my youth. Right? He thinks, I've been diligent, I've been good enough. Ever since I was able, I've worked so hard. I deserve it. And Jesus says, no, let's go back even before the days of your youth. Let's go back to the days when you were a child, when you had nothing, when you could do nothing. That's the only way to inherit the kingdom of God. And I think the invitation is the same to us. Give up all your dependence on all your stuff. Whatever that stuff that you have, that you have prioritized, whether it's materialism, whether it's the stuff that you own, Maybe it's your families, your kids, your kids' sports, your jobs, your careers, popularity. I mean, whatever it is, that thing that you are trying to acquire, Jesus says, let's leave that behind and follow Jesus on his way to Calvary. Mark tells us that Jesus is on his way, which is a cold word for he's on his way. Not just he's just on the road, but that he's on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross. Jesus demands something extreme from this man. But Jesus is on his way to the cross. He makes no demand that he himself will not bear. 
He promises us that whatever we have left behind, whatever sacrifices we make for the sake of the gospel, we will be recompensed, he says, a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. And lest anyone should think that Jesus is promising us here a life of leisure and an easy path, Jesus also adds, with persecutions. We are not offered here material blessings or some abstract wealth, but a wider set of relationships. Brothers and sisters and mothers and children and the means to make a common life possible. In other words, a fuller life now and in the life to come. Look around the room. This is what he's talking about. Brothers and sisters and mothers and children. The community that is possible when we follow Jesus together. So in this season of Lent, let's ask ourselves, do we also lack one thing? The most important thing. Lent is meant to be that one season of the year when we are really invited to self-reflect, to really kind of deconstruct our discipleship and to rededicate ourselves once more to following Jesus on the way. Because he himself is the way, the life, and the truth. Children. It's great, he calls them children. Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. But that's the good news. We are all the children of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The impossible has been made possible for us in Jesus. Believe the good news. Love the Lord and serve the people. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for um, this word, this challenging word. As we consider in this season of Lent what it is to walk with you as you journey toward the cross. God, help us to be reassured, to have the confidence that we are your children, and that though it is impossible for us to do anything to merit salvation, you have made that possible. And in that confidence and assurance, help us to live with such freedom and with such joy for the well-being of others. We ask it in the name of Jesus, who has shown us the way. Amen.